Welcome to Beyond 90 with your hosts, Lance Trezona and Jake Gutierrez. So today we are hyped to be joined by an outstanding soccer writer who comes from our number one source for content over at The Athletic. We are extremely pleased to welcome athletic staff writer Jeff Reuter to the show. Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, don't, I, so, I wish I should rehearse like some sort of just cold <laughs> open where I'm telling some joke about the soup that they serve before the comedy show or something. I really should have something because I never know what to say when someone's like, hey, thanks for joining us. It's just like, you're welcome. And then <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, but that's a terrible way to start an interview. So you're probably waiting for us to scream at you. When is the schedule? But it's out now, man. So <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we'll wait. I mean, come January, I'll be ready <laughs> once again. <laughs> nice bro nice so jeff when did you fall in love with soccer man i actually grew up on soccer um so i am 26 <laughs> just to just to date myself from the start but um i vividly remember at the age of five watching most of the 99 world cup um face paint red white and blue <laughs> Coles off the rack Americana t-shirts that kind of stuff um I, I remember watching a penalty kick and suddenly about five adult hands coming over my eyes which I didn't understand until later that was the Brady Chastain removing her jersey sort of thing um but it was I mean I, it's just always been part of it my aunt was an all-american goalkeeper um was in a penalty kick shootout in high school up in Minnesota against Brian Scurry. Uh, my aunt saved one, Scurry saved two. So nice. these kinds of like folklore stories coming through my family as well. Um, and I, I've just, I've kept it. I mean, like when I was growing up, I had posters of like KG with the Wolves and Tori Hunter with the Twins, uh, Wayne Rooney with Manchester United, even though I'm not a Manchester United fan anymore. But like I had, um, it was always just kind of part of my rotation. I know that there's a lot of uh, American sports fans who grew up in this kind of nebulous stage of major league soccer, whether you're talking about the nineties or you're going before that, who soccer was just kind of off of their radar, but for whatever reason, it was, it was always part of my life. So I, I never really needed to adjust to it being considered a major sport, which you could argue it isn't yet, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's always been part of me and my family, to be honest. Nice, man. Did you, so I take it, you grew up born and raised in Minnesota. You betcha. Did you ever play the sport as a kid when you were younger? I did. Um, I played as a very selfless, we'll say, scared on the ball, holding <laughs> midfielder um, until scared. the aid. I think they described me as the Nikki Butt of St. Cloud, Minnesota, until <laughs> until I was about 11. And then in Minnesota, the, the seasons in the summer for baseball and soccer overlap. Um, I was better at baseball. I think I enjoyed playing it more at the time. Um, stuck with that into whenever I stopped being able to hit. And I was like a very serviceable relief pitcher slash defensive middle infielder slash runner. But when you can't hit a ball as a kid, like you're not going to keep playing. So um, I focused on writing instead, which worked out really well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I played a little bit. I played in a men's league for the last three or four years as a goalkeeper until someone kicked me in the spine last fall, uh, which I don't recommend. I do not recommend that. It was uh, not a fair challenge. There was no foul or card shown either. Um, I went to ground to cover a ball. This is not the point of the interview whatsoever, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm still mad about it because uh, it, it still affects me. My back still affects me. I'm 26 and I've been like Damn. in bed for like the last three days because my, my back flared up again. But um, 
yeah, goalkeeping, again, I try to pick up on the, the whole kind of family pastime, whatever, and then I got kicked in the spine. So I think I'm going to go back to my uh, defensive midfield uh, tendencies when I eventually return on the other side of COVID in like 2029 or whatever <laughs> our timeline is at this point. You'll be well-rested, man, and still young, so that helps. Um, and still young, yeah. yeah. Hey, man, so if, if LinkedIn is to b- be believed at all, I see you got your national F coaching license. Is that true? I did. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe you did that. All right, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, did get, I did get my F license. This was right after the U.S. lost to Trinidad and Tobago in Cuba. I don't know if you heard. They didn't make the World Cup in 2018. <laughs> I heard that. Um, and so I was I was writing a piece for Howler magazine about why the United States missed the Men's World Cup. And it was this whole inquest into 13 different reasons or whatever ended up being the cover story of that issue. Um, and, and part of it was the, the coaching pathway. And it, it was so overpriced as far as accessibility, just like youth sports are in this country. It was... Uh, once you were getting past like the E level, you would go to the D level and you already had to start traveling for like regional conferences to get your licenses. So it was a really imperfect process. So I started going through and the F license was like 25 bucks and you just sit and you're taking like an online course for like five hours and then they hand you a license. And then I think two weeks after that, they announced the F license was defunct and it went off to this grassroots thing. So I have this license that is worthless right now. (laughs) Um, But I do have a USSF coaching badge. I completely forgot about that. Was was it for the story? Were you just, were you genuinely interested? Were you like, I got this US men's national team. Give me a few years. Let me start the track. Right, right, right. I, uh, if I was like a, a middling career MLS backup midfielder, I'd have such a better chance of getting a head coaching job. Um, but I, I did it for the story. And then I was thinking, you know, hey, hey, I could work into it. I can maybe, maybe I'll get hooked or whatever. Yeah. Maybe U S soccer's coaching process isn't as difficult as it seems it is. And then I was wrong, very wrong. Um, did not continue with my F license, couldn't get my grassroots right license. But, um, I think at this point I'm, I'm pretty set. I don't need to do another pivot for, hopefully another few years we'll find out i don't know i don't control this industry so um we'll see but yes i do cling that it is on my linkedin along with like my cpr certification or something (laughs) so you you did freelance writing and podcasting you mentioned before um you had stories on the guardian 442 sky espn fc what was the first big piece that got you national or or international uh coverage I forgot that I wrote for Sky. You're right. You're right. Like I did. I just had totally forgot. Uh, We're deep I, on your LinkedIn. Right. right. Um, there's a few that stand out. Um, and when you're freelancing, you don't know. It's, it's hard because when you start freelance writing, you don't have a personal following. Um, so it's not like your stories are going to get retweeted and you say, okay, that was a really successful story. Or like, I'm looking at my tweet link clicks, whatever. Um, there, there were a few that stand out. I think the first thing I wrote that really hit the soccer zeitgeist was when the Miami FC paid a $750,000 transfer fee for Richie Ryan, um, with the Jacksonville Armada. Uh, who was already a veteran. He was like 32 at the time. He's 30. No, he was like 30 then, 34 now, something like that. Um, But $750,000 in the lower divisions is unheard of. And so it was one of those, there's no chance they actually paid that. I basically had to show them the the, the document that I got uh, (laughs) to prove it. 
Um, two weeks later, the Fort Lauderdale strikers stopped paying their players, which is not a good idea if you're a pro soccer club, or so I've been told. Um, and uh, I reported that as well. And that was another thing that kind of leapt in a little bit. Um, 2017, I started writing for The Guardian. Uh piece every two months two pieces every three somewhere in that ballpark um and, and some of those circulated better than others there's one that i kept rehashing and still kind of reference back to once in a while about why uh major league soccer doesn't sign players from the usl and then from the nasl as well um I, I did a rehash of that this past january that's a little more in depth but um those were those were some of the first ones uh that really did but in reality i mean i, I started by covering minnesota united i wasn't going into this hoping to get a national yeah. scope and I, I think this is i have been getting a lot of calls recently actually from young writers younger i'm also a young writer but from other <laughs> like you know like college kids or fresh graduates or people in markets that are going to major league soccer soon who are you know trying to ask like you know what do i do and i think that you, you, you find a niche and for me it was minnesota united and the nasl by proxy was also a niche mm-hmm. um and you just, I mean, you work from there. It branches itself out organically. Players come and go. Coaches leave, take new jobs. They inform you. You you hear things about that. You text them, whatever. And then suddenly you have a source over in another city and you kind of start building your network and all of that stuff. Um, but, it, I mean, it really did just start small. It was, a, it was a fan podcast. I was a fan of Minnesota United in 2015 and 16 when they went to MLS. I buried that in my backyard. Um, very easy to do. Uh, when a team switches leagues, it's not the same team. So... Um, or switches leagues in that direction. If you go NASL to USL, they're whatever. It's about the same. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, that didn't answer your question at all, but hopefully it helped. (laughs) (laughs) So, dude, when you were a contributor to The Athletic over the course of those freelance years, how did the full-time gig come about with The Athletic, man? Gradually. um, Late 2017... I had reported some expansion news that Major League Soccer did not want reported or was um, maybe a little earlier than it needed to be reported about Nashville getting a a franchise. And so at that point, I had had like a standing freelance agreement, not a contract with Major League Soccer to be writing about them. Two pieces per game that Minnesota played at home um, and then a a couple of occasional features here and there midweek. So they cut that off before the season ended. I, I, I did some ESPN called me the next day, got me to do some more freelance coverage for them from a national perspective through the playoffs, which was really helpful. Um, big, big shout out to uh, Austin Lindbergh for that, the editor over at ESPN who covers Major League Soccer, because if he hadn't placed that call, I'm probably doing something else with my life at this point. Um, and then in February, uh, the Minnesota desk editor, Zach Pierce, uh, reached out to me saying that you know, second season of Major League Soccer for Minnesota United, the Athletic was looking to branch out. They just wanted one freelance piece a month, something just to say that they're covering the team, all of that stuff. So, okay, cool. Let me write a two-part season preview, which is not one piece a month at all, by yeah. definition. That's fine. Um, so I, I wrote that two-parter, blew away their expectations for what soccer fans would want to read. And so they said, okay, can you do one a week? No problem. So I, I, I come up with something called The Morning Loon, uh, which is uh, game recaps, but more narrative-based, not really focusing on the game, but using the game as a reference point for what's going on with the team on and off the field. Uh, they, they like that. They want two pieces. They want something midweek two, so then it becomes two, then it becomes three. Then George Qureshi, Paul Tenorio, Brooks Peck, and Alex Abnos are hired, which starts our national desk. Um, yeah. And I'd worked with George over at Howard Magazine, 
And uh, they, they said, hey, if you want to start covering Major League Soccer at a broader level, you know, we have the bandwidth, obviously, and the interest. Um, and we already have, you know, a standing agreement. So at that point, I was able to jump in full-time freelance, quit my day job, uh, July, early June, late May 2018. And for nine months, I was full-time freelance, which is an absolute grind. Um, yeah, I imagine. And then... Yeah, started covering. Uh, I mean, that that USL report. There's there's one that kind of got me to dip my toes back in the lower divisions about how you know New York Red Bulls too was paying its players with punch card systems, and uh, teams aren't offering insurance. Players are driving Ubers at night. You know, all of this sort of things that people in the lower leagues know but don't talk about and hadn't really hit kind of the national discussion until that piece, and then that was i think to date the most subscriptions i've driven off of any single story at the athletic and so i was like oh i could cover the lower divisions again that's great um so that became more of my uh, repertoire and then by the time the 2019 mls season kicked off they were in discussions with myself sam stage uh pablo mara felipe cardenas matt pence and meg linehan about broadening the soccer desk and that's the staff that you see today so yeah. um I came through started on april 1st and i have had no desire to leave ever since I, i've read that piece that you referenced at half a dozen times at least and referenced it back when i'm trying to research something yeah. and that piece is is huge and it really like it's extremely relevant still for the wage negotiations and the right um yeah anybody who catches this dig back into the archives and check that piece out that piece it's, is excellent it, it, it's wild how little has changed and, and a little really? sad yeah and, and that's it, it it's a it's a bummer <laughs> to put it yeah. mildly using a Midwest term. It's a bummer um, <laughs> uh, because no, there aren't clubs who are paying with punch cards. That's dumb. Yeah. Players have like fixed wages regardless of how often they train. That's good. That's better. Um, most clubs now will offer health insurance, which is good. Um, but I mean, when you're talking about minimum salary, that doesn't exist yet. The union mm-hmm. exists, but they don't have a CBA. So yeah. there's kind of that liminal, what is their reach? What's their jurisdiction? What is their power? All of that stuff. Um, uh, you know, they, they, there's still a lot that needs to be figured out. A standard length of uh, season. Some some pay year-round and some still yeah. don't. And, and that yet's- a, lot, a lot compromised with 10 months is yeah. one of the more common timeframes where it'll be beginning of February until the end of November is pretty standard because that covers the USL championship final, um, which really needs a new name and it covers preseason as well. So that's usually how it goes. And then there are a lot of players who, yeah, December and January, they have no income or they're doing coaching and all that stuff. It's wild. And if you don't make a lot to begin with, then you lose two months of pay when maybe some of your peers are getting it. It's, it's not ideal. Um, not at all. Hey, um, Speaking of, uh, there's so many good writers at The Athletic. I won't ask you to name a favorite, but who's your favorite? (laughs) I won't ask you to, but I will. Um, He's like James Pierce. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a Liverpool. I'm actually not a Liverpool fan. So um, I I have a lot of respect for James Pierce. I have a ton of respect for what James Pierce has a lot. That's what's so interesting about working for The Athletic. And this is such a like there's a certain hand gesture going around a lot of the listeners right now as I start talking about this, um, which you can see and no one else can because podcasts are not a visual format. But uh, I mean, there are a ton of writers that I work with that I really respect. And it's not necessarily just the soccer writers. Like, yes, of course, yeah. like James Pierce, amazing. Uh, Rafa Hernigside, fantastic. Um, uh, 
Tim McKinley, fantastic, right? But like Marcus Thompson, who covers the NBA and has done a tremendous job of covering like race relations and the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, you know everything that's going on in this country as people are kind of renegotiating what it means to be an American and all that stuff in a very real, palpable, poignant way. Um, he does some tremendous work. Meg Linehan, I have so much just respect for, envy of her writing abilities, her interactivity. Um, she, she certainly motivates me uh, tremendously to be better at my job, um, which is big. Um, uh, who is, who? <laughs> so who's who really? Yeah. Meg's amazing. I don't, yeah. I don't really have an answer, man. I mean, like, because if I, I trust the company with their vetting that if they brought in a writer to cover a team, a league, a sport, a tournament, whatever, they did their homework and they brought in someone I want to read. Yeah. So that it, it also helps because if I want to catch up on the, the Timberwolves or whatever, if I'm going to a game with some of my buddies next week, I can read John Krasinski's stuff and I feel like I understand what's yeah. going on with the team immediately, um, which is, I mean, just a tremendous asset. So uh, if, if I have to pick one... Um, I, I think I'm going to say Meg, um, but that's just because Meg's the shit. <laughs> I, I don't really know how to it's a perfect it. answer, <laughs> actually. Um, yeah. so, so there are, speaking of uh, blogs and podcasts, there's no shortage of bloggers and know-nothing assholes with podcasts. But can you tell us what is a, a typical day like for a legitimate writer covering sports in 2020? There isn't one. Um so everyone at The Athletic, outside of people who live in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, and New York City, work from home. Um, we don't have offices all over the country. There isn't a Minnesota headquarters, anything like that. And obviously, right. we'd be working from home at this point anyway. But I have been for two years now. Well, over two years now, I've been working from home. So this is business as usual in a weird way. Um, the off-season actually tends to be busier for me because I am a reporter as well as a writer and analyst, whatever people call, I don't know what people brand me as these days, but um, reporting is such a major part of what I do that the off season is when there are rule changes, when there are transfers, when there are coaching changes, when there are schedules, 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 when there are um, big kind of machinations. And when you cover the lower divisions, you suddenly have this stuff where you get a call out of nowhere where it's like, Hey, auto fury are selling their rights to Miami FC. And you're like, what? And you make two other calls in that boardroom and suddenly you haven't confirmed you're writing this piece. And um, like that sort of stuff just happens all the time. And it's, it's something that Kate, my wife um, has like a, a grins her teeth and Barrett kind of respect for my industry, which is that it, it never fully turns off, which um is I mean like, at times it, it it's hard, man. Like it's yeah. there are there are days where you think like okay, I'm off the grid, I'm at um, I'm at the lake because I'm a stereotypical Minnesotan. Uh, <laughs> I I'm gonna go for a hike and you know with our Greyhound Winston and, and you know we're gonna be able to take some time and just clear my head and all of a sudden I'll get one text that like three players from FC Dallas tested positive today. It's like all right, yeah. well back we go and, and you just can't control that. Um, generally, I try worse at it right now um because of the state of the world but usually i'm trying to be up by 7 30 central with the slow drip coffee started 
so that I can <laughs> be caught up with the East Coast before morning phone calls, morning interviews, all of that stuff. So that's 7.30, uh, straight black coffee, two mugs of it, good to go. Um, if it's over 85 degrees, I'm probably making an espresso instead. Um, not a breakfast guy. We're going really in. I'm assuming that we're the, just doing it like an online dating profile at this point. This is so. my follow-up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then, I mean, like I, I write in the morning, uh, back in the olden times, I would usually go to a coffee shop if I needed to clear my head and just figure something out. If I'm stuck on a piece, whatever afternoon tends to be a little bit slower. Evening is when the crazy stuff happens. Like if there's news breaking, like in the evening, you get that call, the name shows up and you're just like, okay, here we go. Let's go. Um, so no, there isn't like a normal day. Weekends have been off lately. Uh, but that's just because there haven't really been a ton of games. I would imagine that's going to change, but um, yeah, that's what, for the most part, it's been lately. So, Jeff, the USL has a format. It's a little World Cupish with eight divisions and the top two of each division advancing to a knockout tournament for the whole kit and caboodle. So, I think locally some fans were upset not to get paired with rival Phoenix, but by and large, it seems the USL did a pretty good job working with what they had. What are your uh, thoughts on this whole thing? Um, you know, when when they put out their protocols... And they said that any trip within 500 miles would have to be by bus. That made it pretty clear that they were going to prioritize proximity. And I, 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 what it would have come down to in those two Southwest groups was going to be, do you put Real Monarchs with the Californian clubs or do you put Phoenix with the Californian clubs? And that's... Part of that's not just a question of proximity, but you're also looking at competitive balance. And you're saying if you have, um, they're all very good teams, but if you have Major League Soccer playing MLS's back, RSL is going to need to draw more players from Monarchs than usual. So in theory, they're weakened. That's a team that, for whatever reason, always finishes season strong and gets to the playoffs hot but doesn't really start a season very well historically. Um, I mean, part of that, they just need to make coaching changes. I think the last two seasons, but um, as a result of that, they have, they are probably seen as a little bit easier. And so then you look and you say, okay, El Paso made it to the conference finals last year. New Mexico made it to the postseason. Colorado Springs um, is a soccer team. So you uh, <laughs> can you, confirm. Yeah. 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 Um, no, but I mean like they're coming back and they're, they're a little more retooled. They've got Alan Koch who has his yeah. own reputation. Um, so they, uh, I think that you look and you say, okay, if we put Phoenix in that group, uh, that Southwest group, frankly, the, the, the Southern Western group, the one that has San Diego loyal, that's a weak group at that point. And so I think that you, you kind of needed to separate Phoenix from El Paso and New Mexico. It also helps to spread out what the league sees as its strongest independent clubs. And if you have all three of those clubs in one group, I'm including Phoenix instead of Monarchs um, with El Paso and New Mexico, uh, that group is one that's very easy for you to market to newcomers to the USL, people who are just trying to catch a game on ESPN2 or uh, check it out. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for, in that sense, it does make sense to split them up. And then you have Phoenix in a totally different group and they might meet in the playoffs. I'm trying to remember the letters if they're going to be grouped up or not. But, um, yeah, I don't really- you know, I, I completely understand that East Coast was always going to be kind of impossible. It's so weird to look and see Charleston is not with Charlotte and North Carolina FC, but 
I guess it makes sense that you need to put Missouri somewhere. Um, and this is this is just where I think the league realizes that the central time zone is so undercovered um, in terms of the, the geography of it within the championship. And that's going to create some problems when it comes to a force majeure moment like this or whatever. So I don't know. I think that they did pretty well, all things considered, what they could at their disposal. You mentioned uh, players transferring between uh, MLS and affiliate clubs. Is there anything? I know you're intimately familiar with the 53-page safety protocol document. 55, Is there anything yeah. in there about uh, 55 about players moving between their MLS uh, and their affiliate? And and uh, how does that work? With there's there, yeah, there's there's no additional mention. So you're looking at the competition guide, which. Um, at that point, I think that there is a certain limit in terms of just how often can a player get shuttled back and forth. Um, but there's not going to be anything different. Um, I mean, the, the, the teams, obviously the, the team, the USL teams that are affiliated with an MLS team, which has an academy can play those academy players, excuse me. So you've seen like Sporting Kansas City two sign one or two players, to USL contracts because then they're going to be able to play 15, 16 year olds, which um, helps frankly with player development as well. But it also means that then SKC two can send up one of their kind of starting midfielders to MLS's back and still have that roster spot filled. That's going to be very important um, when you consider how the next month is going to look. Um, I, I, I think overall, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some difficulty. There's the, like, there's no restriction um, on how many players a team can receive on loan from an MLS team if you're within the championship. So um, I, I, I think that there's still going to be a lot of that kind of, you know, class. Yeah. This player's hurt. We're just going to send them off to Tacoma for the weekend, and we're going to see how it goes, and then we'll bring it back to Seattle after that. So that sort of thing. So I wouldn't expect any of that to change necessarily. Because they would have to adhere to, to local restrictions on self-quarantine, right. traveling between state lines, et cetera. It seems like it would complicate things. So teams have to decide. Yeah. Am I going to use this player twice is what I would yeah. say. If you think that you're only going to bring in I'm trying to think of a good example here, but um, like if you think that you're rail salt Lake and you're only going to play David Ochoa once, is it worth pulling him from Monarchs, keeping him in the bubble for a month and a half, eight weeks um, and keeping him away from starting for Monarchs? Or do you just say, Hey, you're not going to play in the MLS tournament. We're fine with Zach McMath and um, Andrew Putna. And then we are going to have Ochoa be our starter for Monarchs, get those reps. And then maybe by the end of the year, he's with the MLS team anyway, because he's been playing yeah. you know, unstoppable on his head. So um, that's the kind of decision that's going to be need to be made. Um, there are some teams that are also looking at recalling players that they sent to independent clubs. I think you're going to see a couple of those coming up soon. Um, again, just to fill numbers, depends on how many people are healthy, how many people can show up, all of that stuff. So, um, but no, I don't expect that calculus to change too much except for like you said the extended timeline that they would have to be there instead of you just calling them back for a midweek game in houston and then sending them right back well jeff jake and i are a little bit more uh, western conference folks so which division do you think is the toughest and who do you seeing winning this whole thing man um yeah it's a good it's a good question i i think that there's a couple that stand out as difficult the one that new mexico is and is frankly very difficult um i i i put together some picks um, for the USL website. And I'm not going to lie, I put New Mexico in third place because I think that there's a lot of questions about how do you replace your two best attackers? You also lost a ton of time uh, where you could have been working 
with uh, you know the new look attack and building a, around Sandoval now instead of building against more or with Moar and Freighter as a big part of your team. Um, there's some questions about that. Trailer saying, and that's all the time we have for Jeff Ritter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough group. I, I think that there's there's no group that's truly four deep. I would say I don't I don't think that there's one where you're looking at like any of these teams could advance. I, I think that there's there are some groups that are stronger than others, even if you love all of your children equally. Um, there's some in the southeast that are going to be very difficult. There's there's uh, Birmingham's group is going to be very difficult. Um, here I am pulling up the groups again just to make sure I don't miss <laughs> any. Uh, I can tell you what the easiest group is, and that's Group F, uh, which is the one with Hartford, Pittsburgh, and three yeah. MLS two teams in house. So you've got Loudon, Red Bulls two in a year where Red Bulls one is weak, and then Philly two is what they call themselves now. So. Those are so, I don't know. I couldn't find two teams that I really like in that group. Um, and Pittsburgh lost a lot of players this year too. So yeah. that's going to be a tough one. Um, group E in the East is very difficult with Louisville, Indy, and St. Louis and uh team formerly known as Swope Park Rangers. Um, that's uh, a very tough draw. I, I, I think Louisville and Indy get out of that one. Um, Charleston, Miami, and Tampa Bay in a group is difficult. Um you know, I think yeah. that there's a few that are definitely stronger than others in the end group B with Phoenix, San Diego or in Orange County and Las Vegas and Los Dos might become difficult. But I think that there's a ton of questions about Orange County, uh, Los Dos and Las Vegas, where I'm just saying that Phoenix and San Diego, for that matter, there's a ton of questions about how they're going to play yeah. um, and, and the mental resolve of a team in their first year. And are you I mean, like you saw it, too, like, right, like I know there's not going to be a U.S. Open Cup that donovan's going to be pushing to win um but as the season goes on players get tired and the adrenaline of wow we've got this this city that's you know really enraptured with us and these results are coming so easy in our attack you know depth is very hard to build in this expansion team even in the usl with so much annual turnover that i think at a certain point san diego is going to hit a landmine and it might be like just a loss on the road in vegas where suddenly there are confused about like their identity and something just doesn't go right maybe it's an injury again right um but I think there are still some questions that need to be answered about a lot of those teams. Um, you're definitely in one of the hardest groups. Make no mistake about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why I even told you. I should have just waited for this all to come out. So we had a, a fantastic <laughs> on this podcast. But there you go. Okay. <laughs> Who do I think wins it all? I don't know. Phoenix. It, it's boring. You think it's, Phoenix? it's boring, but like it is. it's going to be one of the teams with depth, which means Phoenix, Louisville, um, yeah. I'm yawning just thinking about it. Indy, Tampa, El Paso. So many midweek games. Yeah. Yeah. So, someone like that, I think. I think that's yeah. the, but I think this year an Indy team wins it, not an MLS team because of the MLS back thing. So you definitely see Phoenix going out of B. Who's the second team you see leaving with them? Uh, San Diego. Nice. But there we go, but, Jeff. There we go. But, Welcome, a, you're welcome to the podcast. There you go. Time. Yeah, I think I, I think that there's still we're back on the horse. That's great. Um, there's a chance Orange County breaks. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty about them because they have so many young players who they break out. They might have ten great games, and if they don't line up when those ten games are, they can stagger them out and overlap a little bit. Like you're a better team for it. If all of them catch fire at the same time and fall off a cliff in August, you're out of luck. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell yeah. you. So it'll, yeah, I, I think San Diego is just a safer proposition in that group. 
So regarding health and safety protocols, there's an extensive set of regulations we talked about a little bit, um, testing, physical distancing, so forth. Um, curious about some of the things that are out of the teams and the league's control, like hotel workers having to wear mm. PPE, mm. empty seats on the plane on the plane when flying. American Airlines is back to full capacity flights. Like what? I want. I'm more curious about some of the regulations that really can't be enforced. So that's that's the biggest question with all of these protocols is that they were very thorough with things like match day. Um, yeah, I still have some trepidation about the guidelines that they set out for hosting fans. I don't think that that was sufficient necessarily. Um, I think that the league it, it admitted that they're doing what they can, you know, and saying, but. There are so many of those clauses where when you go to the travel, when you go to training, when you go to teams arriving for matches, all of that is teams must, teams must, teams must. And then, like you said, there's stuff out of their control. Hosting fans, for some reason, was one of those things out of their control where they said teams should put up guidelines all over the stadium saying six feet. Teams should have grab-and-go concessions that must be eaten in the stands and not in the concourse. Teams should tell their fans not to sing and chant as that spreads the flow quicker. Teams should tell their fans to wear masks. Those need to be mandates if you're going to do this safely because if you're going to have Louisville or Real Monarchs in the first weekend hosting five, six, seven thousand fans, that's insufficient. That's malpractice. And that's putting people at risk if you're not actually following through with some of these guidelines. And I know that the clubs will do some sort of the, I don't know, the, the, the it feels like it's safe sort of things, the placebo effect sort of causes that you need to do. But if you're not actually going to look for it and you're going to fit as many fans as you possibly can, if you're going to try to double what your high attendance was last year in Monarch's case, all that stuff, it's hard not to look at that through a cynical lens. It really is. Yeah. Agreed, man. Yeah. And and they're positioning themselves to be the first U.S. league to play in front of fans, which will separate them from the NWSL, the MLS, even the Premier League, the Bundesliga. The Hub City model we know wasn't financially feasible, but the model that they chose is riskier. Um, The publicity could be great. But it could also backfire. It really could. And what's what's your gain if it works? Your gain is that MLS is more confident when it's planning what it does after MLS is back. Your gain is that Major League Baseball feels better with its teams taking the field. The NBA feels like it can resume in markets in the fall or the winter after the season. Um, but I don't think just hosting 4,000 fans is enough to really move the needle for the USL more than it's already moved, in my opinion. But if you have a COVID bomb, which is what you saw in the Champions League when there's like a team from Spain and a team from Italy, packed stadium, and that was one of the big epicenters when this became global because people come from all over the world for the Champions League. That was the cheapest Champions League ticket that weekend or of that Tuesday, Wednesday, match day. So a lot of people flocked to that stadium. I think it was Atalanta maybe. Um And then it it spread all around the world at that point uh, much quicker. That was seen as one of the big epicenters of it. And I'm not saying that Louisville, Kentucky is going to have the same sort of international draw, nor could you really with international travel restrictions these days. But if suddenly you have uh, a market like Louisville, Kentucky and Pittsburgh, and people come from that because they know they can go, they want to see the new $65 million privately funded stadium. They want to see, I mean, like, again, like the first, state-of-the-art USL soccer-specific stadium. That's incredible. That is like truly yep. like a jewel for their crown. Make no mistake. Um, but what are you really gaining from having fans? I understand that atmosphere is better. I've watched closed-door games. It's hard to pay attention for a full 90 to a closed-door game. You're looking at your phone every minute. I'm Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Um, 
but the the real success is that you are able to safely put your players and coaches in these fields and play games and not have a gap year and not have a year where people forget that the USL is part of the US soccer ecosystem if they're not fans of soccer, right? Like it, it's in front of them. It's on ESPN two once or twice a weekend for the foreseeable future. It's on ESPN Deportes two or three times for the foreseeable future every weekend. Uh, it's on ESPN plus for everybody all the time. Um, but Ah, it just feels like a risk that they didn't need to take from where I'm sitting. Um, and I, I understand it's branded as an opportunity. I understand where you're coming from as well, Jake, when you're saying that, you know, there's potential with it. I see that. I just don't I'm- think it's even <laughs> close to the risk that they're also embracing wholeheartedly. And in these safety documents, the 55 pages, they start by saying we're doing the best we can, but we think that, yes, we acknowledge there is still a measured amount of risk with what we're doing. That was so easy to eliminate. If you just said to all of your clubs, you can't host fans. I know a lot of you are pissed, but we're going to give you some financial relief. Hang tight. 2021 is going to be better in theory if we keep people at home. And they didn't do that. Yeah. And I think that's a failure of the USLs, in my opinion. No, un- unfortunately, Absolutely. I think that the the opportunity to say that the first American Sports League to have matches with home fans is a thing that they really are banking on. Yep. And I do think the risk far outweighs the benefits there. But I think that they, they're they hoping that people will tune in and go, hey, you know, even, everything's so polarizing, even uh, piped in uh, fan noise. <laughs> right. So right. they're like, there's actual real fans. There might be 2,000 but there's going to be people there. I think that they're, they're, they're banking on that. And I don't think it's a great idea personally, like Orlando pride. We know had to back out of the NWSL's tournament mm-hmm. after uh, six positive tests. FC Dallas, you mentioned uh, they had six positive tests after they got to Orlando Phoenix rising and FC Tulsa have reported tests within their organizations. Yep. Um, what happens if a team does actually get overrun? Is there anything that you recall in the in the fifty five page that there's if, nothing with regard to scheduling if a team has to pull out for safety reasons? There's nothing. No, um, I mean the, the document outlines best practices. It outlines protocols for return, but it doesn't outline Plan B. I think that you would have some difficulty with the way they set it up. If this is open table, you reschedule games willy nilly, and you just say like, look. You're, you're playing Phoenix. Like, let's say, uh, I mean, like Texas has had big outbreaks. So let's say all of the Texas teams suddenly can't host and can't have crowds of 20 people even. So then you can't play a soccer game because you need 22. Even if coaches are zooming in, or Skyping in like Eric Winalda in Atlanta, like all of this stuff. Um, if you didn't know that, yeah, when he was a coach of the Silverbacks, he was still uh, doing uh, stuff for Fox soccer. And so there were some training sessions where he would just Skype in um, to watch training. So Eric Ronaldo. Cool, man. Legend, absolute <laughs> legend. Um, I've got a lot of time for Eric Ronaldo. Um, but uh, there, there's no outline. And the way that you set up these groups, if it's a group of four, that's way more difficult. If it's a group of five, it's tough, but you already had to do some sort of finessing and some teams weren't playing teams four times. So now you're just going to add a game and you, you, know, you can link your schedule together and make that math work. Um, but with this format, if you have El Paso have to drop out of your group, if you have to have um, Tacoma or Reno drop out of Group A, they, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And it's difficult too because do you then have to shut down every team they've played within the last two weeks? And there are going to be some weeks where they played three, four teams in two yeah, weeks. A lot of midweek games and yeah, so then very busy. Yeah, so then you might. Do you say it's a risk? I know you can do all the testing uh, that you possibly want to, but. 
Um, is that still enough? I don't know. Um, and, and there's, look, there's a really serious risk with that, of course. Um, and the season is set to end, what is it, October the 4th, 5th, something like that, two weeks earlier than it was going to be under the original schedule. Um, even October felt a little ambitious. That was a text that I got from a few people around American soccer today. Um, it's amazing, by the way, the, the number of people in MLS who talk to me trying to learn about the USL and then the people in the USL who talk to me like what's going on in MLS. Like it's weird to be in kind of that liminal space between the two leagues. But ambitious was a word thrown out twice. Foolish was a word thrown out once um, between the fans, with. but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, and that's the hard part, too. For good, for better or for worse, we'll see. And and it's, you know, the, the, that, that USL memes account had a great the the, the the crying woman dancing to hey uh um about you know when you when you hear that you're going to be able to go to soccer games but people might die from it like that's exactly where the usl is at right now and it, it's very hard yeah. to kind of negotiate between those two things um with everyone's love of soccer of that club in particular more so in the usl than any other league i think in this country um compared to Oh, we could go to games. Well, who else is going to games, yeah. right? Where have they been? I don't know. How, how seriously are they taking this? That's it. You, you don't know. You just don't know. Hey, so Jeff, we we know that the schedule dropped today, and uh, we know who the out-of-division opponents are and when all the matches are going to take place. There seemed to us to be a lot of back-to-back scheduling. Is that maybe because of the – for safety reasons? Yeah. I mean, that's just to limit trips. Because I mean, I guess I didn't really answer your question about the outside factors with travel and, and safety and stuff. Um, if you have to take a flight, make sure you only have to take that flight there and back. And so if there's a way that you can work around it where you take that flight, you play two games there, or you play a game nearby to that stadium where you can bus from, um, that is better than flying four legs, two trips um, over the course of a month and a half. So some of that's very intentional. Some of that is, uh, well, I mean, and to be fair, too, the NASL had to do this in 2017 when they were down to eight teams in their entire league, um, where you had a team down in Puerto Rico, you had a team over in Edmonton, you had a team in San Francisco, and then you had a ton of teams, you had like three teams in Florida and a team in Indiana. Like, it's just, it was such a difficult geography that you have to find these ways to make it where you're not bankrupting clubs, Um in a time where they're already going to be under some serious financial strain. So I, I think that that was very intentional, but I mean, even the bus driver protocol, like you, you can say bus driver, you must yeah. stay with the bus. You must sanitize it before and after every trip, which means yes, you're double sanitizing it before they get back on for the return home or whatever. Um, hotel workers, you're going to be not changing our bedding, but you're going to be leaving extra towels, all this stuff. You can't control that though. So yeah. I think limiting the trips, that is something that they can realistically control from a league level. It makes total sense why they scheduled it that way. But the travel components of it, of course, I mean, like we've said this whole time, it's everything's a risk with this whole thing. But um, I don't, there's kind of a fiddler approach to this, which is a, a punk rock band out of California. Uh, fiddler is an acronym that stands for F it dog life's a risk. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but I think that's a stereotype of podcast. Swear away, please. We we ask you to spell it out, please. Sorry, did Okay, it dog. Life's a risk. It's kind of the mentality of a lot of this. It's just like, okay, well, it's no matter what, if we're playing in markets, but only we can play. So how do we do it in the way that's the least amount of risk? That's basically what USL twenty twenty looks like. Yeah. So we know the first match back is between the great team in San Diego and Real Monarchs with a capacity of fifty three hundred socially distant people at Rio 
Tinto. But aside from Sacramento hosting Tacoma, are all um, other first weekend slate matches likely to have fans in attendance, or are they going to be all empty stadiums? There's a lot of teams that are waiting until week of to make those decisions. Um, as, as part of a piece that I put out um, last week that was kind of just a primer of what's going on, um, I emailed every single USL championship club, and I said, you know, hey, are you planning on hosting fans? And there's an overwhelming number of clubs over a dozen that said tbd we'll find out like we we just don't know we want to use the most updated thing possible um there are only four clubs that said no and one of them was real monarchs so go figure um so i I think the clubs are just gonna wait for the most updated guidance that they can possibly get from their state from their city whatever um i mean of course if you look at like which ones are being highlighted on deportes or the or the deuce like um for the espn airwaves like you're going to probably want the crowds because if you're going to, if you're going to go through with it that way, you better like at least show it while everyone's healthy, which is really cynical. But like, I personally still think mm-hmm. that whole thing is cynical. So there you go. Um, mm-hmm. It is a little weird that you're putting one at a high school football stadium with Taft stadium in Oklahoma city. That's a very strange one to put on a Monday night. Um, but OKC and Tulsa are determined to make that, a better rivalry than it's been in the last few years with they were the Roughnecks. Um, and and Tulsa's put a lot of money into their team. And OKC has a new coach with John Pascarella who hasn't been a head coach at a pro level before. So there's some intrigue with that. What point he's going to look like his players. As far as I've heard and been told and spoken with players about, like they really enjoy playing for him and they believe in his philosophies and his system. So it's going to be a really intriguing team. Um, so that matchup has a little bit of juice to it, but um, I, yeah, I think that if you look that first weekend, they wanted to come back with a bang. They wanted San Diego to go to a stadium with the highest capacity possible. Who's the defending champions? That's something people are going to want to watch. You're going to want to have Louisville playing against Pittsburgh, the team that finished first in the East last year. And yeah, I know Greenspan's gone and a couple of other players, but that's something that you can market. You're going to want to have um, a couple of these other matchups that maybe I think is Reno Sacramento is another one. Like I, I think some of these matchups, you just want a little bit of pop to it. Um, so yeah, I think that that was definitely intentional, especially as you're trying to kind of catch the audience early on and keep them from there. Yeah. Well, we've seen in the NWSL that a majority of players are taking a knee during the national anthem and the anthem is being televised. Um, Jake Edwards, he tweeted recently, he would support um, players if they wanted to participate in peaceful peaceful protest i'm assuming now that we'll see televised anthems when the usl returns but there is the added question now fans in attendance who in some instances will offer additional reactions for the tv audience this could be good or bad um certainly will generate conversation do you think that usl is sort of banking on this as it's a great question no that's a fantastic question and that is such a zeitgeist kind of question that um there are pros and cons to it i I know that the USL doesn't have like a decision finalized yet about what they're going to do with the Anthem. Um, but if I'm thinking about it from my perspective, I think that there's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. One, again, who do you play it for? Is it for the fans? Okay. Do you need to play it for closed door games? Two, if you're not playing it for closed door games, is it weird to then play it and broadcast it for games with fans? Three, do the fans want it? Four, do the players feel safe if they want it? Five, are the players going to be okay if they lose that? Because there are some players who also, by the way, still see that as a very good, viable platform to send a message silently and peacefully and then play their game as normal. And so there are some players who I'm sure would be upset if they lost the anthem and that ability to 
um, peacefully protest. Um, all of that is bouncing around the heads. And then six, can you really come up with your plan that isn't universal? Is it fair to say if you travel to a stadium with fans, there will be no anthem, but if you travel to a stadium that has no fans, um, then they, they won't ha- go through the anthem custom. That's a very difficult sort of thing to, to kind of negotiate. I think that they still need to figure that out one way or another. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's still uh, the other thing going off of the first week of the NWSL Challenge Cup. Is that the attention you want? Because you will get people in the media who are tweeting support or condescending views, you know, against it, um, who will be coming out and and giving it attention, making it into a news piece, making it into something that's um, a talking point beyond your soccer fandom. But it's also taking attention away from the soccer. And people don't talk about what was that game between North Carolina and Portland Thorns like um, from a soccer perspective. Everyone talks about the anthem. Everyone talks about the protests. Everyone talks about um, whether or not the anthem should be played at games. That's something that you're embracing if if you allow that sort of, you know, it's such a, a not, it's a complicated, nuanced, not at all. It's, It's not sporting. That's not a sporting decision. Which we not at all. a bunch of sporting executives to really figure out what's the best way to go about this because that's not their training. It really isn't. So I, I think that that yes, it will be a lightning rod moment for that first game in Real Salt Lake. I would imagine the Real Monarchs at Rio Tinto. Um, it will be. I would imagine it will be played there because it's still being played in Sandy. And why would they stop playing it? If uh, it's the same owner who owns Utah Royals, who's helping propping up the Challenge Cup, why wouldn't they play it? Um, I don't know. It, it's just again, like, is that is that what you want the focus to be on? It's focus. I don't. But at what cost? Yeah, I'd, I I don't know the intentions, unfortunately, and that's I'm a little curious about it because I, I I do think it, it will be a lightning rod and and that attention, even if it detracts from the game. I wonder if in the if that if the league is wondering if that benefits them regardless. And um, yeah, so I guess we'll find out. Mm -hmm. Um, That brings me to Dan (laughs) D'Amico. I want to ask you about him Um, looking at uh, his tweets, retweets and likes. We've seen a voice support for all lives matter, denounce Colin Kaepernick. And he uh, loves to blame everything he dislikes on George Soros and Antifa. Um, He released a statement saying he's not racist. He just has different political views and, Ben Goshorn from uh, the Soccer Goose on Twitter. He's the president of Jack's Militia. He met with him yesterday, posted a great article on BGN Today. I encourage you all to read it. But Ben said he's boycotting the team now. Um, surely the league is seeing all this. And I'm curious, Jeff, what you think, it, what comes out of this, if anything? The league knows. Well, well, let's start with that. The league is aware. They were aware before the last week when it's really inflamed. Um, because it's been going on for years. I mean, this is this is someone who is an advisor on his presidential run in 2016. Like, like it's not just somebody who owns the team, votes, donates, has their own opinions, which yes, largely overlap. This is someone who helped shape the policies and the current regime. I know he wasn't part of the cabinet or anything, but he was a major advisor. So like you can't just say it's a coincidence, but then if you're, if you're going in on this, like, and my drink's almost empty. So 
<laughs> should have grabbed the second one. But if you need to grab another one, uh, if you need to take a pause, we I'll will wait till the next you. question, and then I'm going to keep my fridge, which is at my headphones. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. We'll go but it's it's hard because he's retweeting. This is just me. I'm going to say 100. percent I'm speaking at me. If you hate this, tweet at Jeff Ruder. Tweet at R U E T E R. I will be very happy to either respond in a calm manner if you sent me a calm tweet. Or to not respond at all if you're not <laughs> friendly and whatever. Like, come on, let's be civil about it. But what right. I will say is that the platforms that he is approaching, whether you're talking about Antifa, whether you, which, which literally means anti-fascist, let's just start with that. Um, if you're talking about calling it the China flu, if you're talking about Kaepernick, these aren't fringe ideologies and views anymore. This is part of the Republican platform. From where I'm sitting, what he's saying isn't like like it, it it has the party itself has shifted so far right over the last four to eight to ten to twelve years, give or take. You can say that this was coming at a congressional level before Trump was elected, and I think that that's a very valid argument. Um, but you can uh, if you. I, I've seen the calls from fans in Charlotte in particular saying that they need to do what the NBA did when Donald Sterling had his tapes released by V. Stiviano, um, uh, which were abhorrent and don't even bother further mention beyond that. Look it up. There's a good 30 for 30 audio documentary series uh, by Ramona Shelburne. I highly recommend you listen to that if you're not familiar or if you want to revisit that with the modern context. That's great journalism. Um, great. Yeah. But with that, it was at its core plain as day racism, bigotry, abhorrent, uniquely, specifically against what the NBA is. There was no other option. And yes, like Adam Silver could have done something else, but he didn't, and he did the right thing, and that that, that situation was handled. Honestly, I can't imagine a better way you can handle that. So then the question becomes, okay, well, then does the U.S. I'll do the same thing? I think that there's two things to keep in mind there. And again, uh, this is 100% me. Um, one, it is the platform. This is the talking point that is being shared by not just the president, but senators, representatives, when they're doing interviews on CNN, Fox News, never NMSNBC, whatever. Um, they're the exact same views. So if you say this is unacceptable from our owners, that's going to be a lot of the people who have the capital to buy soccer teams are maybe going to have the same sort of views. I'm going to prioritize for sure different policies and ideologies that allow me to keep more of my capital, which allows me to spend it how I want to in a free market. Um, and is it just because he's tweeting and got caught, but there might be an owner of a Western conference team or a few who I know have donated to Donald Trump. I keep track of this sort of stuff. You can look up who every single person who's donated over X hundred thousand, whatever dollars. Uh, I'm sure the majority of, of sports team owners are probably conservative, but being yeah. openly xenophobic and, yeah. and racist on, on the things that you promote mm -hmm. um, with uh, the Kung flu, he was very transphobic in some of the things yeah, that he supported. Absolutely is. And I don't, I don't blame Ben at all for being, for being offended and not, yeah. and really questioning where his dollar goes. As a I, it, purely because of the views I have, I would be protesting if I were a fan of the yeah. club. That's what I would be doing. Yeah. I would not be spending money. 
I would say, hey, I haven't gotten to a game yet this year because we haven't had games. I want to cancel my season ticket. No, I don't want it to carry over to 2021. Yeah, I want out. I, I want to. I want as much money back. That's what I would personally be doing. But if I'm looking at it from 10,000 feet from a league level two, that's one thing. Number two, what is the future for Charlotte Independence? And this is very difficult yeah. because are you trying to broker a deal with someone else in Charlotte who can keep the team there despite MLS coming there next year as planned or maybe 2022 if COVID pushes that timeline down a year? Um, it still looks like 2021, by the way. Um, or do you say, hey, um, I don't know, name your team, New York Cosmos, Oakland Roots, Chattanooga FC, yeah. um, Jacksonville Armada's ownership group. Do you talk to these groups or do you talk to uh, Philadelphia, do you, who maybe has wanted a team once in a while? I don't think they really do anymore. Cleveland, Des Moines, uh, Buffalo, New York, all of these Rochester Rhinos. Do you talk to all of these groups that have been in this like, charade musical chairs game of usl expansion and say like buy this buy this get this team out yeah. relocated you'll get part of a roster already you're gonna have the all-time leading goal scorer on your roster that's pretty cool like come on like it's a really good property you should do that um but if that team is just gonna fold either way do you just keep your head down and let it go for a year and hope it goes away and i think that there's a very real possibility that that's what happens um it's that is a very difficult situation because of the scope of his involvement in the current, I know I'm just repeating myself now, but like to summarize, like it, it is not as cut and dry, obvious red card offense as Donald Sterling was. If you're looking at it from a league level, if I'm looking yeah. at it from a fan level, it is. But I control a small part of their income if I'm a fan, and if you're a league, yeah. you have bigger questions that you need to be answering. I think that that's going to be a very difficult situation to get out of. And I don't think that they have a solution that's readily appointed um, anytime soon, if I'm being honest. I think that's fair. And this seems like a very good time to plug uh, Hugh Roberts uh, podcast backyard footy. And he's done a really good uh, series um, with, with black footballers and they've been talking about their experiences on their teams. Please look it up and listen and uh, learn from, from, um, what those guys are experiencing in their markets, and and uh, I think it's a, it's been some some really great content. So, um, Lance, yeah, well, I Jeff, I know that you're down to your last few uh, sw- swigs oh, of it's uh, gone. Your drink. <laughs> oh, there, right? it's gone. Oh, it's already gone. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. So we'll make this quick, man. Um, is there anything you'd like to touch on that we haven't discussed yet? Um, so it, I mean, it, it, it's something that I said on the usl show last week but i think it still bears repeating especially in contrast with the the dan tomiko conversation um is that there's there's zero reason whether it's an owner or a fan that this league that these clubs should be catering to racists anymore um and i think you've seen a disappointing amount of that across american sports um in the sense of putting out, and this is something I wrote with Meg, my hero, and Pablo Marra uh, about a month ago now, just under a month ago. Um, soccer, you, you brand yourself as the world's game. And you you come out swinging, you say all these things like fan appreciation night, but it's a diversity night, and we're going to have uh, pride night. And we're going to have all of these sort of things that say, like, hey, we include it. But all we're doing is just making more money by printing different colored T-shirts. And that's the extent of it. And that's what a ton yep. of teams and leagues do in this country. Um if you're going to be a soccer club, like you have no excuse is, is where I'm at. This isn't a political issue. Racism is a human rights issue. Um, xenophobia, transphobia, uh, uh, 
bias against people of certain sexual orientations, all of this um, nationalism, extreme nationalism is specifically, I'm going to say white nationalism too. Um, if, if you're going to be keeping your head down and ignoring those those members of society who aren't truly part of society and saying, well, their, their checks clear, their direct deposit for their tickets went through. Like, why would I, you know, why would I not want to sell that ticket? Um, then you're in this for the wrong reason. And, and I, I, I think that it really is time to have that discussion of why, why, what do soccer teams stand for? Um, and I think that a lot are failing. I think a lot are failing. I think that you can put out as many diversity initiatives as you want. You can put out as many statements as you want to. You can put out as many. But if you're truly not hiring a board member right now on your club who's black or who's trans or whatever, I mean, whatever your shortcoming, whatever your blind spot of your current board is, you failed. I think that if you're not saying we stand with our black players. We stand in direct opposition to the police brutality going on in this country, this plague of over-incarceration that goes on in this country, the new Jim Crow. Uh, and, and if you're saying just all lives matter equivalent stuff, and you're saying we stand for diversity, you failed um, to live up to what you are doing in society. If you are trying to go out of your way not to piss off people who are making the world the worst place, then... I have no time for you in, in my experience too. I mean, there's, there's just no room for ink for that kind of, uh, you know, a vision of the world, a, a money driven vision of what it means to own a soccer team in the United States ahead of the 2026 men's world cup. Um, which is why a ton of people are in it. I get it. That could be a huge boom, but if you're just like yeah. sticking it out, not standing for anything and hoping to clear a check in 2028, like it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. So, I mean, yet it's not a moment. It's a movement. You've seen it everywhere. But if you haven't been actively trying to participate in making the world a better place, like get on it. Like it's, yep. come on, it's, it, you're needed for that far more than you're needed for sourdough bread, for animal crossing, for, I don't know, what, what do people do anymore? I mean, like it's, you know, <laughs> Wholeheartedly agree though. Right. Like no, no more empty statements and platitudes. Let's, it, you could, you make your statement, but there needs to be action behind it and you need to, to uplift your communities and you need to help the people of color and the, and, and these teams need to do that and not just release a statement. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you completely and I agree with Ben and I back him totally. Yeah. It'll be interesting to yeah. see how that all works out. It really will. Do you allow fans? I mean, if it, if it's up to you guys, do you even open the doors to fans at this point? Do you say, "Oh, we're suddenly going to pay attention to COVID. We're not going to have anyone in, so we can't have a protest in our stadium in Charlotte." Well, your piece you did, <laughs> New Mexico is one of the few that said, "No, we're not going to have fans," and so we're not expecting it. And we're trying to determine what the outdoor watch parties may or may not be. But right. um, even here, our numbers are skyrocketing. So I'm on the on the supporters group. I'm on the board, and we're we're being very careful, and we're not looking to do anything where we put anybody at sure. risk it just doesn't make sense so yeah we don't see it so we well, shall see fun cheery <laughs> note i mean <laughs> sorry that, 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 that's where i want to take this conversation but i think it's important i think that you don't it that that's more important than any of this kicking a ball stuff completely it really is, is. So, yeah yeah do the work do the work educate yourself make mistakes learn from the mistakes grow because of it see it as a growth opportunity instead of a fuck up like do all this stuff like that's that's how the world improves as white people, as a white person myself, like that's how you do it. Perfectly stated. Well, 
I'd like to thank Jeff Reuter for your time, for uh, for your generosity of your time, especially we had a couple of uh, hiccups at the beginning. Um, if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic, please subscribe. And I think, Jeff, is there a way to go uh, to subscribe specifically to request more USL content yeah. if you're a USL we're, fan? We're running a 30-day free trial for any new subscribers, regardless of how you find us. So if you just click on one of my USL articles and then you know it says new subscriber, try your 30-day free trial, and you do it off of that, it, it's a... It's an upvote gotcha. for USL coverage. It tells us that, yes, there's still an audience for it. There are still new eyes that really want this. We need to keep pushing it. We need to keep finding new ways to cover this league and keep covering this league as a main part of our offering on the website. So, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff I do is over on The Athletic. Uh, I don't host podcasts, so I just crash podcasts once, twice, three times. <laughs> um, you'll, you'll find me. I don't know. I'm well, please, please subscribe. Uh, if you need a free a free run, Lance and I are both subscribers. Lance or Jake at Beyond 90 will give you a run. And But do subscribe. Uh, Jeff is the best. Meg, Pablo, all the guys he named, they're, they're wonderful. So subscribe. Jeff, thank you, man. Appreciate your insights and your time. And hope to see you in person one day, man. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. Beyond 90 has been produced by Chingo Records and In the Sangre Productions. Please leave a review if you liked what you heard.